Welcome back. This is Sam. And this is Corrine, and we are two Ankh Ducks. And this is Ronuk. And I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan from the Fellow on Call. We're continuing our special collaboration series highlighting sessions from the ASCO 2023 annual meeting. So tell us, Corrine, what are we covering this week? So this week's episode will be focusing on RCC, uh, or renal cell carcinoma, and covering the CONTACT-03 trial, which had the title of Efficacy and Safety of Atezolizumab plus Cabozantinib versus Cabozantinib alone after progression with prior immune checkpoint inhibitor treatment in metastatic renal cell carcinoma. And this was the primary progression-free survival analysis from this phase three randomized open-label study which was presented by Dr. Chwery on June 5th and also published in The Lancet on the same day of presentation. Great. I think we're all excited to talk about this trial. So before we dive into the study, though, let's talk about metastatic disease and the treatment of RCC. So how do we classify RCC in terms of what treatments to pick in the frontline setting? And what is the risk stratification tools that we have? So we previously covered this in our RCC episode, but we have two risk stratification tools. We have both the MSKCC, or Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, or Moser score, as well as the IMDC, or International Metastatic RCC Database Consortium score. And both have the same following criteria, which is less than one year from diagnosis to treatment, low hemoglobin, high calcium, and low Karnofsky performance score. The MSKCC also has a high LDH. The IMDC also has high neutrophil and high platelets. And if you have zero of these risk factors, it is favorable risk. If you have one or two, it's intermediate risk. And if you have three or more, it is considered poor risk. All right, so before we get into second-line treatment options for metastatic RCC, let's quickly cover the first-line treatment paradigm for clear cell RCC. We know that we stratify treatment according to risk criteria. So what are the frontline treatment options for favorable risk RCC? We have a couple options in terms of favorable risk RCC, which are three category one recommendations for combinations of a tyrosine kinase inhibitor with an immunotherapy agent. It's really dealer's choice in terms of which agent to pick because we don't have any trial comparing these head to head. The recommendation is to pick one of these and be familiar with it in terms of toxicities and dose adjustments. So first we have Exitinib Pembrolizumab, and this is from Keynote 426, which also had an update presented at the same session at ASCO 2023. We also have Cabozantinib with Nivolumab. And finally, we have Lumvatinib with Pembrolizumab based on the CLEAR study, which also had an update at the same session. And some providers may even argue to give single-agent tyrosine kinase inhibitors for these patients. But we know that there is some biological rationale of combining immunotherapy with TKIs because there was an increase in PFS, OS, and response rate over sinitinib. However, the median duration of response for these agents is around two years, and so there's definitely more work to be done in this space. Okay, so for favorable risk, we have IOTKI. So then are there any additional frontline treatment options for intermediate or poor risk RCC? Yes. So we have the same options as favorable risk, but then we also have ipilimumab-nivolumab, that combo immunotherapy regimen based on the Checkmate 214 study. Of note, in the past, there was also a role for IL-2, but at this point, this is not a treatment option in um, modern day metastatic RCC treatment. And we know that more than 50% of patients that respond to ipilimumab-nivolumab have durable responses. And so in terms of knowing how to pick when you have all these options, if you have sarcomatoid feature, there is some indication that that doublet immunotherapy is favorable. 
If you need a rapid response, we know that that TKI immunotherapy combination has quicker responses. But if we have a patient that doesn't need that rapid response, doesn't have sarcomatoid features, and we want to aim for that long-term durable response, likely we'll go for ipilimumab, nivolumab outside of a trial. There's also a lot of ongoing trials in this space. So there's a study called COSMIC313, which is evaluating a triplet combination of cabozantinib with that doublet immunotherapy of ipinevo. And then there's another exciting adaptive trial called the pedigree trial, where you start off with that doublet immunotherapy regimen of ipinevo, and then based on the response, you may add cabozantinib. And then one other final thing I just wanted to mention, when you're looking at metastatic RCC, if you have oligometastatic disease, so a limited number of metastatic sites, we really should be considering local therapies up front, whether it's radiation, resection, or ablation for these patients. What are some of the second-line treatment options for RCC? So it depends what was given in the first-line setting. Most patients are now getting immunotherapy in the first-line setting, so you're going to go to a non-IO regimen if you're following the guidelines. However, some clinicians may still decide, for example, if someone got ipinevo in the first-line setting, to try one of those IO-TKI combos, which is what this study helps to answer. And if someone has gotten a TKI in the first-line setting, you should switch to a different TKI. And then there is a combination of one of the TKIs, lamvatinib, with an mTOR inhibitor, everolimus, so that is also an option. Great. Thanks so much for that awesome review and a lot of first and subsequent line treatment options we have for metastatic RCC. So the question here is, does rechallenging with immunotherapy plus a TKI improve outcomes when you compare it to a TKI alone in patients who've previously received immunotherapy? In the past, immunotherapy was preferred second-line option, but now that's part of almost all of our first-line regimens. Should we rechallenge immunotherapy in the second line? We know that there is a retrospective data showing about 20 to 40% responses with rechallenging, but can you tell us, you know, what are we seeking to answer? So there's an emergent practice where, as I mentioned, clinicians may be rechallenging with immunotherapy after previous progression on immunotherapy in metastatic RCC. And so CONTACT-03 is a phase three trial comparing the efficacy of the pdl one monoclonal antibody atezolizumab with cabozantinib compared to cabozantinib alone in the post-immunotherapy setting. And there were 522 patients enrolled, which both could have clear or non-clear cell RCC. They could also have sarcomatoid features, but they had to have had previous immunotherapy either in the adjuvant setting, in the first line, or in the second line metastatic setting in the immediate preceding line of therapy. And atezolizumab was given at 1,200 milligrams every three weeks, with cabozantinib at full dose of 60 milligrams once a day versus cabozantinib at 60 milligrams once a day alone. And patients were randomized in a one-to-one fashion, and the primary endpoints were PFS and OS. Can you tell us about the key characteristics of the patients enrolled in this trial? Yes. So the median age of patients was around 62 years old. Three-quarters of patients were males, and 80% were white. So again, that's a disappointing underrepresented minority enrollment. And then in terms of what treatment patients got, half of patients got immunotherapy in the first-line setting and half got immunotherapy in the second-line setting. Most of the patients were intermediate risk or poor risk. And then two-thirds of patients had gotten prior tyrosine kinase inhibitors, and one-third were tyrosine kinase inhibitor naive. So assumably, those patients had gotten the doublet immunotherapy of ipinevo in the frontline setting. And then only 20% of patients had received IO-TKI in the frontline setting, 
And this is because when this study was ending its accrual is when all of these IOTKI combinations were being approved. And then none of the patients were on adjuvant pembrolizumab. And again, this is because of the timing of the study with adjuvant pembrolizumab only getting approved in the last two years. Yeah, thanks for going over all the, the details there. Table one, always super important. So never, never look it over, uh, never overlook it. Um, but what I really want to know is what was the difference uh, between the arms of the study? What were the rest of the results of contact 03? So this was a negative study. So there was no difference between the two arms. The PFS was similar in both arms at around 10 months. And this, in looking at the subgroup analysis, all of the hazard ratios for progression-free survival were close to one. One interesting point is that in patients with prior uh, complete or partial response with prior immunotherapy, there was a hazard ratio of 0.76, but again, it had a wide confidence interval, which crosses one. The overall survival was also similar in both arms at around two years. And then another key secondary endpoint of overall response was that patients uh, that received cabozetinib had a response of about 40% in both arms which is higher than what was seen in previous studies of second-line cabozantinib, both in the Meteor and CaboPoint study, where the response rate was about 20%. And then in terms of subsequent therapy, most patients ended up getting another TKI um, at about 22%. One thing that I wanted to talk about this study, there's actually a couple things I wanted to talk about. The first thing is we talked about how cabozantinib had a response rate of 40% in this trial, but only 20% in previous studies. And this is the important thing to understand when we look at the results of clinical trials using what we call the frequentist approach. That is really when all of the p-values that we're talking about, we're trying to say is drug A better than drug B. And I want to be pretty confident that drug A is better than drug B. But the actual effect size or how much response I get or quantifying that amount isn't captured as well in many of these studies. And there's a confidence interval among these responses. So to me, it's not surprising that in this study, it's 40% and some others, it's 20%. It's a range, let's say 20 to 40%. And that's how an important thing to understand when it comes to under, looking at these trials. The second thing I wanted to note is we talked about the subgroup analysis in our other abstract episodes. But in this one in particular, one thing that I want to highlight is that when we think about looking at every subgroup on a forest plot, we talked about an archery example where you want to know is the specialized trained archer better than me. So let's pretend that we're both shooting at a target and we have a target that's six centimeters in diameter, for example. And a specialized trained archer, you give them one arrow, they're going to hit it every time. You give me an arrow, I'm definitely not going to hit it. But if we look at 10 different subgroups and you gave me 10 arrows just by chance alone, I might hit the target and you won't know if the specialized archer and me are different. And that is what's important when thinking about subgroup analysis. You can control for this by pre-specifying which subgroup you're going to test with something called an interaction statistic. You don't really see this happen in cancer clinical trials. And as the speaker said, this is purely hypothesis generating. And I think the one of the best things he said was that the confidence interval is the distance between Boston to Chicago. It was incredibly wide. You cannot trust it. It's theoretically hypothesis generating. But if you have that hypothesis beforehand, you should pre-specify that in your statistical plan. That's a great reminder, Vivek. And now, you know, of course, I think the the question for us as clinicians as well is, you know, this was a negative study, but also what were some of the uh, toxicities associated with this combination? 
So in terms of toxicity, there were definitely higher adverse events in the combination arm. And so 55% of patients in that arm had grade three or four adverse events. So definitely not insignificant. Uh, there was also double the discontinuation of cabozantinib in the combination arm. And there were also three deaths in that combination arm with renal failure related to immunotherapy, intestinal perforation, as well as immune-related colitis. And then the toxicity profile as expected for this combination generally was diarrhea, palmar plantar erythrodysthesia, hypothyroidism, decreased appetite, and increased ALT and AST. So this is a terrific overview of the CONTACT-03 trial, and what are our key takeaways? So there was no improvement in clinical outcomes in patients with metastatic RCC who progressed on or after prior immunotherapy treatment and subsequently received immunotherapy again. There was also increased toxicity in the patients that received immunotherapy in addition to the TKI. And this data highlights the importance of randomized prospective assessments of re-challenge with immunotherapy in metastatic renal cell carcinoma, as well as other cancers. This does show us that cabozantinib has about 40% response rate in the second-line setting, and this is higher than was previously seen. And there are some limitations. Some believe that pdl one agents like atezolizumab are less effective than PD-1 agents like nivolumab or pembrolizumab in RCC, and none of the pdl one studies have an OS benefit so far. And this study did show that immediate rechallenge of immunotherapy had no response, but perhaps there could still be a role of delayed rechallenge with immunotherapy. I think that's great. And this is one of the most important trials that we're presenting a negative study, which is really, really important in oncology. That's how we move the field forward is we need to have some negative studies that get a lot of press. The last thing I want to say about the subgroup analysis and the soapbox about the archers, hopefully everyone has a picture in their head of this random dude, Indian dude, trying to shoot arrows at a target but doesn't know what he's doing and has 10 arrows and hits it by chance, is that if you broke up these subgroups by enrollment in June, July, August, September, November, December, you might find that there's a difference in survival or a difference in PFS in any of these endpoints based on month of enrollment just by pure chance alone. And that's really important. The more subgroups you test, the more likely you're going to find something by chance alone. Critically important to understand multiplicity when we're thinking about trials. All right. You know, and I, I agree with Vivek uh, in terms of the importance of negative trials. I'm not just saying that so I don't get shot by an arrow. But um, do you consider this trial practice changing? Yes, I think it does, even though it was a negative study. Although the standard first line was a bit outdated at the time that this trial was accruing because there was no role for IOTKI. We know at this point, based on this study, that we should not rechallenge with different immunotherapy agents, whether someone has received IOTKI or IOIO in the first line setting or something else in an IO in the second line setting. It does not answer what to do on progression in the adjuvant setting based on the keynote 564, which is now considered standard of care in many places. Perhaps for those that received adjuvant pembrolizumab and then did not progress for a period of time, it would be reasonable to rechallenge with immunotherapy if there was a long period of time since completion. Perfect. And as always, guys, thank you so much for listening and tune into our next collaborative episode next week, where we'll be covering another abstract from ASCO 2023. As always, please feel free to reach out to us with any questions, comments, or corrections on our Twitter, Instagram, or our websites, 2 Docs, and the Fellow on Call. Have a great week.